at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. E.J. Fagan. Tonight, I am joined by the editor-in-chief of the Start Spreading the News blog, Dr. Paul Semendinger. Hey, E.J., how are you? And from the the, the, uh, the Colorado bar, <laughs> Scott Moss Esquire. <laughs> hey, Paul and E.J. All right, so uh, uh, we got some we got some news. We, we were, we've been holding off for a couple of weeks on uh, uh, on talking about you know, current events because we, we would be repeating ourselves. There been a, other than the Yankees not signing guys, there hasn't been a lot of news, but there seems to be a pretty meaty rumor going on at the, at the winter meetings right now, and that is that the Yankees are attempting to swing a three-way deal with the Mets and Marlins where the Yankees would probably give up Miguel Andujar is what it looks like. And they would probably get uh, Noah Syndergaard in return. Uh, so, uh, Paul, what's your reaction? Is this, a, is this a good idea? Well, the Yankees need pitching. There's no doubt about that. And if you're going to go big, well, if you're going to go, go big. And Noah Syndergaard is an ace. He's a stud. He's young. His best years should be ahead of him. The only worry with him is his injury history. But as long as the Yankees find somebody to replace Ann Duhar at third base, you know what? And I love Andujar. I make the trade. Scott, I'd make the trade in a heartbeat. I would give up Andujar and literally any other prospect they want for the Yankees. That's partly because the Yankees have, in my mind, zero prospects now as good as their top five for the past several seasons used to be. So it's Andujar and a prospect who's sort of top hundred, but not tippy top top hundred like a Clint Frazier or Gleyber Torres back in the day. And I think Syndergaard's just that good. He's eerily like Paxton in that he's had some injury history, but they don't seem like things that should keep him really out of commission. He projects as basically a you know five war pitcher, which is pretty top of rotation, and he has years of control left. How do you feel about about Noah Syndergaard shaving his hair or cutting his hair? <laughs> well, he'll lose all strength like Samson, right? I mean, he, he has the best nickname in sports, in my in my mind, right? Not not only is it Thor, not only does he look like Thor, not only is he Thor's size, he's 6'6", who Scott was pointing out before this, he'd be only like the third tallest Yankee, but still he's this massive guy who throws 101 miles an hour and has a curveball called Thor's hammer. Like, it's the, it's the best. Like, I, I'm just excited for that. Um, and he seems like a fun guy, especially, you know, he, he definitely doesn't take the game too seriously. Um, I think I think that the condition here is is who plays third, right? After you lose Andujar, and if the answer is Manny Machado, yeah, sure. Like it's not my money. Um, I, I would love to to do that. That's like a net win increase of seven or eight wins. Um, if Kyle Seeger plays third instead, yeah, I'm less crazy about that. Um, and then there's this other question going on of who plays second, which we also have to, have to think about. Um, so I you know I I like the trade. I, I hope the trade goes through. Um, but I, I wonder what happens after the trade. But I think there's well, so many guys available who could fill in that spot, given that they have Gleyber Torres. Really, 
he's young enough that he doesn't have a defined position yet and with Gregorius out so when you think about how Taurus could be either second short or third and you hope he settles down there's a point Paul made a week or two ago that you don't want to keep bouncing him around forever but you can put him anywhere but that means you can get a second baseman third baseman or shortstop so yeah the best case scenario is they get in the garden and sign Machado which would be amazing how much better they'd get but when you consider how much solid talent there is above average players for a second short or third I mean you have Jed Lowry, you have DJ LeMayhew. I mean, these are uninspiring options, but guys who are above average. So when you compare the production you get out of expected Lowry or DJ LeMayhew or Daniel Murphy, you can kind of still play second base. I don't know. I mean, you, you and I, BJ, have been the low men on Andujar thinking that he just can't play defense. The offense seemed a little lucky. I don't think Rejects is a star who's hard to replace next year. Paul, you're going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say there's uh, if, if they could get Machado, I mean, that's that's unbelievable. But there were reports that the Yankees don't want to spend uh, $300 million. So, so as Scott was saying, what the Yankees are going to have to do is they're going to have to find a cheaper alternative. Maybe it's even like Mike Moustakis. Um, again, I don't want to move Glaber Torres around. I'd look <laughs> to put him out of position and keep him there. And uh, there are reports that the Yankees are looking at Scooter Jeanette to play second base, which is something I've advocated for on the blog, and I think it makes a whole lot of sense. And I believe I took uh, Scooter Jeanette in our fantasy uh, uh, acquisition league. Um, I this trade sounds too good to be true to me. Honestly, I feel like I, I feel like Andujar is really good, but Syndergaard and maybe JT Realmuto are just like a step above him. And I suspect the Yankees would have to give up something greater. If the trade was Clint Frazier, Miguel Andujar, and like a couple of prospects, would you guys still do it? Yes. Scott? I would. I mean, I think that's a lot of value the Yankees would give up. But when you consider that, in a way, Real Mudo and Syndergaard are both similar value players, like four to five war, you know, star players. Uh, and it was nowhere near that. So the Yankees have to give up more. And Clint Frazier's a lot to give up. But... The reason I think Clint Frazier is super likely to get traded is that he has high value to somebody, but low value to the Yankees as a corner outfielder who's a righty. So, yeah, I think the amount the Yankees lose if they trade away Andujar and Frazier is near zero off what you'd expect for next year because Andujar is an average to mildly above average performer, even if he's a only mildly below adequate fielder. So I think that would be a huge win for them. All right, uh, before we move on to the main part of, of this of this episode, I want to ask you guys for a probability. What percentage chance do you put on this trade actually happening, some version of this trade where the Yankees get Noah to Syndergaard? Paul, give me a number. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's very likely. I think this is one of those fun winter uh, meeting trade rumors that just gets everybody all excited. I can't see the Mets allowing Syndergaard to go to the Yankees where he's going to star where he's going to anchor the rotation and could win the Yankees a couple of world championships. Boy, oh boy, their new GM would really be something if he let something like this happen. Um, so I'm going to say 10%, and I think that's high. Scott? I was going to say 10, but I'll say 15. But I'm hoping it happens because in our fantasy draft of each of us guesses 10 trades or whatever for the offseason, I had all of trade away Frazier, trade away and do hard trade for Syndergaard. What? So really? I just, yeah. <laughs> I would okay, like wow. win all the yeah, just with one trade. Yeah. All right. So I think, I think this is a, I think, I, I don't know what 
I can't, assigning a number to it is hard, right? So I asked you guys to do it, so I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> I'll say 25%, one in four chance. Wow. This seems like a really meaty rumor. A lot of things, like if you look at the MLB trade rumors thread today, a lot of things kind of aligned that it seems like this is something that the Yankees are seriously discussing. So the Marlins basically have said we have to trade JT Realmuto. Like he's been, he's asked for a trade. He's not, you know, he's, he's too good for our team. We're going to get rid of him. Um, the, the, the Marlins have said we want a major league hitter in return. A, major, a real major league starter in return. Miguel Hunter checks that box. Yeah, uh, and JT Ramudo is going. Now, whether or not Syndergaard can move means that the Mets would have to be willing to essentially trade Syndergaard for Ramudo, which I don't think is, is likely. I think it's more likely that like Clint Frazier goes to the Mets as part of this deal or something along those lines, or the Mets try to make this deal without without the Yankees. Um, but I, it's just there's enough meat on those bones that this feels like something that's real. It's not like a, a rumor of a rumor that's being circulated because we're all desperate for news. It sounds like something that's actually being discussed among actual Major League executives. The Manny Machado angle is also out there. That just makes too much sense. The Yankees have all the money in the world. The best player to hit free agency in a long time would like to sign with the Yankees, and uh, they just need a spot for him. And well, Trey Miguel Andujar just makes too much sense there. Yeah, and one follow-up on that is that the willingness to go to $300 million on Machado, I mean, that's rumored as a cap, but I don't buy that because it's something that's floated. I mean, it's possible they then go up if they have to to beat the Phillies, but their willingness to go to a certain level might have been premised on having to spend money on pitchers. If they traded for Paxton, they trade for Syndergaard, that means they don't have to do what everybody thought, which is spend $200 million on starters, say Hap and Corbin, which everybody thought was most likely. So if they didn't have to spend $200 million on starters and instead get mostly cost-controlled ARB guys who are getting paid, you know, $10 million a year-ish, that saves up a lot of money that they could spend on hitting, namely Machado. Uh, you make a great point. You know what uh, Syndergaard made last year? Less than $3 million. $3 million. Yeah, $2.975 million. Which he's brings he's he's controlled for, what, money. three more years? Three uh, more years yeah, under three team more control, years, I think? Yeah. yeah. So three years of, like, a potential ace, that, that, that doesn't come cheap. Which brings up the question, I've never understood why the Mets are talking about trading Syndergaard. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. I could, I can conjure up a scenario where they think that if they trade Syndergaard and then sign a free agent, they got something valuable for Syndergaard, maybe they're giving up future to win now in a weak division. But it seems like it's a strange strategy for the Mets. I don't get it. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about Harold Baines, the Hall of Famer. Um Harold Baines was elected by whatever the Veterans Committee is called these days to the Hall of Fame. Um, Harold Baines was a 38-win player by Baseball Reference War, uh, was pretty good for a very long time, so he was, you might call him a compiler, somebody who was not really con- in consideration for best player in his position or in baseball much at all past his 30th birthday um, and never really was, you know, had a season that was miraculous. Um I don't think really had any real big postseason accolades. Paul, can you please tell me who is Harold Baines as a <laughs> as the old person here, the older of the three of us, yeah. and uh, why? And so okay, let me actually you know, let me back up for a second. <coughs> Excuse me. What is your opinion of this? Whatever we call the Veterans Committee, the today's game committee. What is, what role should they play in baseball? You know, uh, after they made this. Uh, strange election into the Hall of Fame. I don't think they need to have a role at all. It's interesting. The the Veterans Committee came out because they felt over the years in various iterations that there were people that the baseball writers missed. 
But now these guys are on the ballot for 10, used to be 15 years, I believe. And, you know, if the baseball writers are looking at a guy for 10 to 15 years and they don't feel he's worthy of Hall of Fame, why do we then go back and revisit him uh, again with a panel of like 16 guys? So you had 400 plus writers saying, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't pass the test. And then we decide, you know what, we're going to let 16 different play different people decide with a ballot that pretty much we're going to force them to try to pick somebody in a, in a in a caucus type of meeting where they all sit around a table and argue about it. Um, I, I think that committee makes a mockery of the Hall of Fame. And uh, Harold Baines, from all accounts, the nicest guy in the world, super duper guy. Of course, I've never met him or any of that, but everybody says what a classy guy. Uh, he has the most amount of hits of anybody not in the Hall of Fame is, is, I guess, an argument. But he was never seen as a Hall of Fame player, and um, he does not belong as far as I'm concerned. Scott, what, what, what's the role of this committee? Um, I think Paul nailed it, which is that, yeah, the start of the Hall of Fame voting, yay back, they existed to look back at eras that the current writers didn't know. But... It's come to be just that they're the committee that's still bad at this when regular Hall of Fame voting through the writers got good in the past 10, 20 years. I mean, Paul, you and I are old enough to remember 20, 30 years ago, they'd regularly vote in guys like Harold Baines. And then, you know, we all got a clue and got a little better at this. And I think the writers, as much as they, you know, get some heat now, they've mostly caught up with the times and aren't doing silly votes. And it's getting better and better by the year as more and more writers who get advanced stats and don't go by vague impressions they had from their childhood are voting. So if anything, it's that the Veterans Committee and the writers used to be equally questionable and arbitrary in their votes, and the writers got better, and the Veterans Committee didn't, because the Veterans Committee is Jerry Reinsdorf, owner of the White Sox, and a bunch of retired players. So it's just that they used to be no worse at it than the writers, but the writers, to their credit, got better, and the Veterans Committee didn't. Yeah, so I mean, I think that in, in a functioning world, they should be doing two things. They should be inducting people who are culturally significant to baseball. So the writers on the normal ballot, they should be inducting people who are good at baseball. Let's just put the best players in, and we will debate who are the best players and how good a guy was, but ultimately, that, that's our goal. And the players who are significant to the game shouldn't get in that way. But then the veterans players will say, okay, maybe he wasn't a great player, but he was an important player. Um, and he's a player that we want to have in the Hall of Fame, or maybe he's just George Steinbrenner, not a player at all, and important to the game. And to me, that that makes a lot of sense. And it's ridiculous that someone like Steinbrenner doesn't get in, somebody like Baines does get in. Over the last couple of years, they have been trying to correct what they see as mistakes by the by the writers. And I'm okay with correcting mistakes by the writers if we have a committee to do that, but not so soon after the writers have decided this is not a good idea. Now, Harold Baines, you know, has been off the ballot for a long time now, but I forget who they inducted last year. They inducted somebody last year who, like, just just left the ballot. I forget Jack who it Morris, was. Jack Morris, right? Jack Morris, yeah. I mean, that to me, that's ridiculous, right? Like, the, the a long, pro- a very long and grueling process decide that Jack Morris was not a Hall of Famer, and they just decide to come in and change it. Um, I, I, Harold Baines seems to me like he's kind of in that vein. Is For you guys who, who remember Baines as a player, because I don't, does he have any cultural significance beyond being a nice guy? No, he could hit. He was a great—I uh, wouldn't even say great. He was a very, very good hitter who uh, played for a long time. They loved him in Chicago, 
Um, I believe when he was traded, he was the butt of the joke that when George Bush was the uh, owner of the Texas Rangers, he joked that he traded Sammy Sosa, who at that time was great Sammy Sosa, for Harold Baines. That was like his big mistake he made. And then it turns out that Harold Baines is actually the Hall of Famer and Sammy Sosa isn't. So that, that was his real big claim to fame that I remember from, from his career. All right. So now given that, that there's no – I can't find any obvious reason either, right? So given that there's no non-playing reason to induct him into the Hall of Fame, Scott, just how bad is he as somebody inducted just because of his playing ability? How bad is this choice? It's really Put bad. Num- give me numbers. <laughs> uh, what are we on? Like a scale of 42 to 85? or No, no, a scale of 1 to 10 where 10 is – um, colossal earthquake level mistake. I think this is about a 10 because look, even the most dubiously informed hall of fame voter isn't going to do something crazy like vote for Austin Romine after he retires, right? You have to have at least played a number of years and been above average. Well, Baines is about as bad as you can be while playing full time for a large number of years. I mean, to play over 20 years and compile 38.7 war I mean, I've, you know, yes, I agree with those on Twitter and blogging saying, let's not overstate the point by crapping on Harold Baines, who was a very, very good player for a very long time, and it was cool he was in the game. I remember liking him. But look, let's just stipulate that we're crapping on him relative to this, right? So he is about as unqualified as you can be and have even an uninformed voter think he's qualified. I looked up Jim Rice, who I remember as someone that, and Paul, you and I talked about this last year, maybe his Hall of Fame episode, where... We all thought, a lot of us thought he was a Hall of Famer when we were watching him. He got in, and then looking back with advanced stats, we're like, you know what? He wasn't actually as close as we think. And Baines is actually 10 war worse than Jim Rice. So I think Baines is as bad as he can get and have even uninformed people vote him in. And Jim Rice had the mega year. Like, I get, yeah. I get to the Jim Rice voters, right? There are people who say, I don't, look at, I don't know anything about statistics, but I remember when Jim Rice was the best player in baseball. And he was. There was a there was a year. In fact, there was a three year stretch where he was probably the best player in baseball, if not you know top five. Right. And um, if you look at Baines, the most jarring thing about him, and this really gets my goat because I wrote a post a couple of years ago, um, just taking the strong view that I want people who are great for five years, not compilers. Right. So I have no use for Don Sutton in the Hall, who has like sixty WAR, but was pretty good. He was sort of the Harold Craig, Craig Biggio is the more recent example, I think, right? Maybe, yeah, yeah. But in contrast, I would have voted for Johan Santana in a close call or Dave Steve, who's the Johan Santana of the 80s, who he was the best for like six years there, seven years there, and then never heard from him again due to elbow injury. But, you know, Baines had exactly two years. He, he had a lot of years where his wars were in the twos, two point something. Then he had one year of 3.4 and one year of 4.3. He was never one of the 10 best players in the league. And honestly, I look back, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember anyone ever thinking he was one of the 10 best guys in the league ever. I was an AL fan. I was a Yankee fan. And yeah, there's one year he showed up ninth in MVP voting, but that was a push. It was a stretch. He, he just never was great, and I don't think anybody thought he was great. There are people who had great respect for him. He seemed like a guy who went about his business and was a low-drama player and consistent and people respected and liked him, but I don't think anybody thought he was one of the dozen best players in the league, uh, seriously. No, I don't think they ever did. I, I, I think he was, again, he was a nice ball player. And for the second half of his career, he never played in the field. He, he couldn't field. He couldn't run. 
And and listen, I have no problem electing a DH, but if you're going to elect a borderline candidate, he's got to have something. And, and Baines, you know, maybe you say like, well, Bill Mazarowski was the greatest fielding second baseman ever. And you go, all right, well, I'll, I'll give him that. But Baines doesn't have any of that. He was a good hitter for a long time, but... I, I, wonder, if, well, I wonder if him going 1-1 in the draft, like, gave him a reputation that he didn't deserve. Mm. Maybe, you know, but I, you know what? I don't ever remember people talking about the draft like that uh, back in the 80s. That, that, that doesn't seem to come up as much. It seems to be more of a modern thing that people focus as much on that. But maybe that's just my perception. You Scott, know, what were you going to say? You know, I wonder about the DH thing. I mean, I have a big support of Edgar going in, and I don't think you automatically penalize someone for DH because, fine, if someone's a DH, view them as a bad corner outfielder. And war sort of accounts for that by doing the positional minus. So if you score well enough like Edgar, despite being a DH, the system of calculating war and whatever takes care of that. But it is relevant in the following way. If you're a DH who is just a compiler, well, you know what? There are a lot of center fielders and good fielding outfielders whose careers ended at 34 to 36 because they dove for balls and stuff and put in more effort and pulled muscles. You know, a lot of there are a lot of corner outfielders or who are good fielders or center fielders certainly who could have racked up 40 or more war and lasted 20 years if they just DH'd after age 27 because Bain barely played the field after 27 um, you know so I think it's especially fair to penalize him for DH given that he was just a compiler I mean just compare him to a guy like Edgar Martinez who was twice as good as him right. as a designated hitter I mean we can we can measure these things and we can we can at least say that Harold Baines was not a phen- phenomenal hitter and he wasn't a ph- phenomenal defensive player and so there's not there's not there's no real like hat for people to hang it hang their hat on. There's not even a Jack Morris moment, right? I like Jack Morris. People are dumb, I think. But at least they have an argument, right? At least they're like, but he did pitch that one game. Like that one game was spectacular. Everybody agrees with that. And like I, as far as I know, I can't I can't remember any legend being told about a Harold Baines game. No, I don't remember any. And Paul and I, you know, we were stumped and we were around at the time and just, you know, don't remember any. So, uh, can we, oh, by the way, for that, for the record, Jack Morris is more than five war better than Baines. And Jack Morris had a number, <laughs> Jack Morris had he was a, a number pitcher of, too. Yeah, Jack Morris had a number of seasons where he was a four to five plus war pitcher. I mean, he was legitimately had a number of years where he was one of the five best pitchers in the league. So, as much as it wasn't, a, it was a bad pick, it wasn't a crazy pick. But so, can we, uh, play my game that I looked yeah, up some play numbers? Your game. All right, so what I did is I wanted to figure out, we're talking a lot about Harold Baines, but we're you know, nominally a Yankees podcast, even though we talk about what we want. Um, the question is, Harold Baines isn't a great pick. There are a lot of guys who are uh, like him or similar to him. The question is, which Yankees of the past several decades, and let's go back to anybody in our lifetimes of watching baseball, um, who are the most, who's the most similar Yankee, do you think, to Harold Baines? And for some bounds on it, well, I'll just define it as, not just the same war numbers, but it has to be corner outfielder, DH, or first base. Just because a second baseman with the same war is just too different. So name a corner outfielder, first baseman, or a DH, loosely defined, who you think was the most similar to Baines. Uh, your lifetimes? Lou Gehrig. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Paul, you go first. <laughs> oh, you know what? I, I've, been, I've been blogging about this and writing a lot about this, so I might be cheating because I, I think the answer is Jesse Barfield. That's a good one. He's in the top couple. EJ, right, Jesse. Bar- okay, my, my mind went to Roy White. Mm. 
You see, for all your big talk about being uh, younger than we are by about two, three years or decades, is that, you know, you picked the guy from 100 years ago that I was sure. I was guessing that one of us, Paul or uh, me, would talk about Roy White, and you'd say, I have no idea who that is, but go ahead. I don't have any idea who that is, but I know his stats. <laughs> Roy White, he was big this. in the 70s. He hit a couple of home runs. I think my dad liked him as a kid. Went yeah, to Japan. Japan. That was a big thing in 1979. He went to really? Japan. Really? He went to Japan? Really? Yeah, played like, for the Yamiori Giants. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That um, was a all big right, deal. So, so Roy, Roy White is number one? No. Uh, Roy, oh, White, come on. Roy White is fifth of the guys I can come up with because Roy White had about eight war more. And so I checked who's similar in two ways. First, just most similar war total. The second way I picked is I rank order their years, uh, their top 15 years, because Spain's played too many. There aren't really comparable people played 22 years in a similar war. But I rank ordered their years from best to worst for Baines and for five other guys who are really similar in war total who played for the Yankees at least a little. And I subtracted each year to say, okay, their best year was within 0.7. Their second year is within this. In other words, I tallied the difference in war each year to figure out who had the closest stretch of years. Like the, right, give us a clue. I'll, I'll make it's another more recent, guess. It's more recent well, than I want, I want a clue first. It's more recent than you guys picked. Yeah, so Barfield was fourth and White was fifth. So these are good guesses. But the, uh, the top three are all more recent. All right, I got one. Go for it. Paul O'Neill. He's number two and oh. arguably number one. So Paul O'Neill had 0.2 R more than Baines for his career. And if you add up each year of differences, so O'Neill's best year minus Baines's, then O'Neill's second best year minus Baines's, and add them all up for their whole careers. Well, for their top 15 years, because O'Neill didn't have the last the years 18 to 22. For the top 15 years, O'Neill's sum of the difference between him and Baines's is only 10.7. That is his top 15 years. Most of them were within less than one war of Baines. So that's pretty close. It's top 15 okay, years. So are, we're going with corner outfielder types, but we're not we're not talking about home run hitters or anything like that, right? No, I didn't war. count for too many. Brett Gardner. Yeah. That is number one now. Yes, that's, that's right. I cheated a little bit because, <laughs> because he, uh, Brett Gardner is 1.2 below Baines, but you know what? As a guess for the rest of Brett Gardner's career, given how beaten up he's starting to look like, if Brett Gardner gets 1.2 war next year, which seems entirely possible given he's the fourth outfielder, if he gets 1.2 war next year and then retires, he is exactly the same war total as Harold Baines. Ooh, okay. So maybe it's O'Neill. Maybe, you know, Gardner a little more, but basically we'll view O'Neill and Gardner as tied. Now, the third, by the way, third place, David Justice. Wait, wait, wait. Give us, oh, I want a clue. Come on. All right, David <laughs> Justice. All right, good. You got the full list here? That's basically the top five. Yeah, so I, that that tells us a lot, right? That tells I think that gives us a good frame of the type of player we're talking about here. I mean, Brett Gardner, Paul O'Neill had like his '94 season, I think, or his '93 seasons were like absolutely elite. He hit like 360. You know, he he had some really top of the line years, but for the most part, he was that player. He was that guy who was good but not great. He had a late start to his career. He played a long time, but you know, he didn't. He didn't really peak when when you would have liked to peak if you were trying to put together a Hall of Fame case. And then was decent enough late into his career that he, playing in a very offensive era, that he um, you know, he was able to be productive until he retired. And no one would ever consider him as a Hall of Famer. Yeah, two other things about a comparable, and in a sense, maybe O'Neill's the better comp than Baines, because also Gardner, a lot of fielding value. Baines is so different. Um, Gardner was certain- better at his peak, too. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. So O'Neill, here's the thing. Um, O'Neill had one year above five war. That was that great year you mentioned. 
But O'Neill had only four years above three wars, so O'Neill didn't have as many. So Gardner, David Justice, Jesse Barfield all had five to seven seasons of three war or more. You know, O'Neill was kind of like Baines. He, only, he didn't have that many years where he was a top 10 player in the league. Joe O'Neill basically had two years where he was a top 10 to 15 guy in the league. And now, the other funny thing is I looked up the Hall of Fame votes for those guys. <laughs> O'Neill, without looking, what percentage would you guess O'Neill got on the Hall of Fame ballot? Paul? Two. 1%. Wow, 2.2%. And then he was off. Mm. Uh, Jesse Barfield? 0.3%. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's a trick question. They didn't put him on the ballot. <gasps> what? What? He had Everybody gets on the years. ballot. Yeah, I know. I couldn't believe it. He had 12 years in baseball, and maybe the inside is not much more than 10. But Barfield was weird in that he had three years of over five war. He had five years of over three. Barfield's the sort of guy I'd consider. He's not a good candidate, but, you know, there's a stretch where he was like six, seven, five war. He was really good. And Roy White got 0%. So none of these guys got any respect whatsoever. And Baines himself got 5.5% on the ballot in his average of several years. So no writers took any of these guys seriously as candidates. That's fascinating. It, All right. That's amazing. You, you know, the other thing, I just want to throw this out there, is what drives me a little bit crazy is how the narrative changes depending on the player. Um, you know, you want to go back to Jack Morris and... Well, he deserves extra credit because he pitched in the World Series and he did all that. Well, you know, if you want to compare Baines to O'Neill, O'Neill was on all those championship teams and O'Neill did have some big moments. He made that great catch in the 96 World Series in whatever it was, game five or game four to help secure a Yankee win that, that helped bring the World Series pennant back to the Bronx. And, you know, but that I guess that doesn't count when it's Paul O'Neill, but it, it doesn't matter or it doesn't get held against Harold Baines, even though he never had a postseason moment and he barely played in the postseason. It's it's just, you know, like, what is it? What What is it that makes Baines a Hall of Famer and O'Neill not a Hall of Famer? It's just sort of like you make it up as you go along, and that just drives me crazy. Yeah, one more tally, just to not be to death, but I also looked at Beyond the Yankees, because maybe the Yankees, this is weird, who has retired from the 90s to present with, again, corner, first base with DH, within one career war of Harold Baines? That is 37.7 to 39.7. So here's the list of guys who retired in the past 30-odd years who were really close to Harold Baines' career war in the past 30 years. Carl Crawford, Maglio Ordonez, Juan Gonzalez, Paul O'Neill, Kent Herbeck, Lonnie Smith, Jesse Barfield. I mean, all players that you knew... Like like watching them play, you knew who they were, and they yeah. were like names, but like not even not even like close. None of them would you even consider any point in their career like even like a Hall of Fame prospect. No. Yeah, I, I, I um, I don't know what the Veterans Committee is thinking here. I, I think part of the problem is that we've outsourced our the Baseball Hall of Fame to organizations that are not ac- accountable. Is not the word. This isn't a democracy, but they're not. They don't have a purpose. There's no rules written down. There's no mission for them to accomplish. And there's no one trying to see that they accomplish their rules. And the BBWAA is like sort of accountable because they have to meet their constituents on Twitter occasionally. And so they don't want to get yelled at. And so some of them kind of either don't vote or they go through like they go through the hoops of of doing research and, and making a good, honest vote. But the Veterans Committee is just, it's just, a, bunch of, it's just a bunch of players. And at least I, I feel that when we talk about Hall of Famers, we don't talk about the Veterans Committee. 
Like we don't we like it's it, it is kind of like a like a junior Hall of Fame, not a real Hall of Fame. Um, but you know when when you go there to Cooperstown, the plaque's still there. Yeah, and you know one other thing I'll say that makes it even worse than we were saying is not just the bad pick is that. What I vaguely remember from, I just remembered from Bill James' book from the, about the Hall of Fame from 20 whatever years ago, is that there's this era when Frankie Frisch, I mm-hmm. forget exactly, he was an old player with the Cardinals or whatever, he got in the Veterans Committee. And the Veterans Committee is really small. It's not like 500 writers. And it's guys who, you know, literally 16 people who talk with each other. So if you have a strong personality or someone who has credibility, they can just dominate the room. So there's this era, and I don't remember the names, where it's a bunch of former teammates and friends of Frankie Frisch who were all inducted <laughs> at the same time. And it's like Great bullpen catcher. If you look at, if you sort Hall of Fame players by just how bad they are, you'll get like people who hung out with Frankie Frisch, right? So um, it reminds me when I was at my law firm and, you know, we got a new office and we had a fridge and they were figuring out what beverages to stock it with. I said, oh, let me run a little vote on this. And I used this, you know, manipulable voting procedure and we ended up stocking the fridge with all lemon flavored drinks because I was into that time. So the fridge was filled with like diet pink lemonade snapple, Pepsi lemon twist, diet Pepsi lemon twist. And then after a couple of weeks, they said, screw you, you ran a garbage election. And it's sort of what happened here. I feel like it's just corrupt in that this year, I didn't know this history, but I just read today that two of the 16 on the committee were Jerry Reinsdorf and Tony LaRussa, who, uh, Reinsdorf owns the White Sox and Baines is a White Sox and LaRusa had him as a player, had Baines a player. And Baines well liked, but also in the committee, it's a lot of foreign players, but LaRusa is a manager and, you know, also a lawyer by training and Reinsdorf is an owner. I'm guessing that they were the large personalities and good speakers in the room. And you can see them just dominating if they really love Harold Baines as a person or maybe loved him as a player. You know, I can see them advocating for him and I don't, I'm not mad at them. I don't blame them. That's their perspective. I blame whoever left the rules in place. So you get 16 guys in the room who aren't really baseball analysts and then, you know, strong personalities dominate because it's a bunch of players and maybe a couple of execs who are better at speaking and commanding a room. I think a mission statement, like a, a, a clear delineation of what we expect them to do would solve a lot of these problems. And I, I really do think that, that if you ask somebody about the Veterans Committee, they're, they're, they want, they want uh, people who are significant figures in the game. And if that's their job, I think that they could do it pretty well. It's actually not a bad group of people to do that. Um, but it, it shouldn't, like, uh, again, they, they should have to justify. And even if it's something like they should, have, they should write a written justification for why this person should be in the Hall of Fame, maybe that would solve some of these problems. One of their arguments is that Baines was part of two work stoppages, and he ended up with 28 <laughs> some odd hits. And if he what? hadn't been two strikes, he might have had 3,000 hits. Oh, that's ridiculous. This is where they're reaching oh for. God. It reminds me of one of my favorite things to say in court when opposing counsel is something like, well, this happened, this happened. I said, yes, if we had ham, we could have ham and eggs. If we had eggs. <laughs> uh, yeah. So moving on. Thank you guys very much for, uh, for this episode. This has been great. We will have an emergency podcast if that trade goes through. Um, if not, we'll be back next week. If you are listening to us for the first time from the Baseball Prospectus website, which I hope we will be on the front page of pretty soon, um, you can follow us on Twitter at BronxBeatBP. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes. Please let us know if uh, uh, what you think of the podcast and if you have any feedback for us. Twitter is the best way to do that. Everybody else, thank you for joining us. This has been your Bronx Beat Podcast. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry, 
From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.